Hi, this is Hank Shockley, and you're listening to Dad Bod Rap Pod right here. Stony Island Audio. And now, it's time for the Dad Bod Rap Pod with your hosts, Damon Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Three underground rap nerds walked into a bar An argument ensued about who the goats are The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod Now fans worldwide say Not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad Who chronicles the vanguard of hip-hop at large Rap taste slacked off, don't need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod Rap pod Pod, pod. I am one third of your host, Demon Carter, aka Dim One. Uh, I'm joined by my man Nate LeBlanc, louder than a plaid. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Um, hey, what's up, guys? Um, we have a special guest with us here today. Um, Dad Bod Rap Pod listeners may be familiar with uh, our buddy Jason P. Woodbury from his stellar music writing career. His awesome podcast transmissions on aquarium drunkard which i was lucky enough to be a part of at the beginning of the year from contextualizing uh so many great records in press materials uh from formerly writing for a alt weekly from working in a record store from having a beard from so many different things from his excellent <laughs> record um always happening something happening i hope i'm saying that right last year which i really enjoyed did i say it right <laughs> Yeah, just reverse the two. All right, all right. Um, so welcome to the show, Jason P. Woodbury. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here with you guys. Right on. And are you drinking a stout, my man? I'm having... <laughs> One hard stout right now? I'm ha- I'm having a Guinness. Nice. Damn, what a flex, bro. The stout. Yeah. It's, okay. it's seven my time, so I figured if I was podcasting <laughs> 07... I was allowed. I was allowed to have. Thank you for not transposing the numbers. There has been no bigger impediment (laughs) to us interviewing cool people than time zone confusion. Oh, absolutely. I've I've screwed so many things up this week based on time zone stuff. I just yeah, it's a constant. I'm you know I'm normally pretty good about it, but this last week I slipped a bunch. So wait, where are you? Central Mountain. Well, so Arizona is mountain. Uh, okay, it's mountain. We're, we're mountain, but a lot of the time we're Pacific time. A lot of time yeah. of the year. Yeah. yeah. We never we never change our clocks, which makes right. it all that much more confusing. So right, everything anyway. changes around you. Yeah, exactly. It's but Arizona's anyway. world, and and we're we're all in it. It's also Dave Ma's <laughs> world. Dave, do you drink stouts? I don't think I've ever seen you drink a beer that black. No, I don't. I don't. I'm not a big beer guy. No, I'm more of at a, all. More of a whiskey guy. But yes, um, yeah. as we've okay. seen, really... <laughs> pulls out flask. It takes a nation of a million scouts. I mean, uh, um, really good to be here with you guys. This uh, this ep- this episode is so sophisticated. 
<laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> nice. Yo, yo, bummer's the show callback. Yeah, we got a an interview with a Public Enemy Bob Squad producer Hank Shockley on the other side of this uh, segment. But yeah, we 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 have all gathered here today to gush over uh, one of the greatest albums of all time. Jason, I'm wondering when and where, when and how did a nation of millions. Uh, find you and and how did it strike you up, upon first encountering it well i i certainly remember i i'm like old enough that i remember sort of like uh just like fervor about you know rap music in general like as a kid i wasn't like encountering it but i sort of just remember being aware of its existence somehow you know um but like a lot of people I think I kind of got hip to PE via the Tony Hawk soundtrack. <laughs> mm. Yeah, which would have been like a little later, obviously, yeah. in, the, in the game. I kind of like, I heard hip hop growing up and I was like a, a fan of West Coast stuff, especially just stuff I heard on the radio. But stuff outside of that, it, you know, I had to kind of find my way to it a little bit later. So it wasn't really until I started getting into record collecting more in the sort of like late 90s, early 2000s that I started to like really understand who Public Enemy was. Yeah, I uh, I need to understand what Tony Hawk game and for what system. Because now <laughs> it's, I'm... It's, uh, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking, I'm thinking the original Tony Hawk Pro Skater and I'm thinking okay. PS2. And it's, okay. the an it's the Anthrax version. So it's uh, like... Hey, so bring the noise. So of uh, uh, bring the noise, right? So so you get the you get the anthrax. Uh, for me, I did have some context for like thrash metal and things like that, and so it's a little bit of a, you know, well that's a that's a thing that re upon revisiting the record, geez, the thrash metal kind of runs through it in some interesting ways. It's it's cool that that wasn't just a one off. Um, the anthrax thing, it, it's pretty embedded in the musical DNA. I found, but yeah, in the, the kind of frenzy level reaches that height which is fairly rare for hip-hop like it's it's there's a there's so much energy contained in the grooves of these records and it's interesting that they found their sonic peers kind of elsewhere i i mean i was thinking about how at, i mean both the beastie boys who are also referenced on the record and run dmc both had sort of hard rock uh elements were pretty integral to their i think kind of breakout success right like that that, that gave listeners a, a a hook that they could sort of recognize oh i can i can i can pick up on these sorts of signifiers or whatever the riffs but i was thinking about how <laughs> on this record public enemies doing it too they're sort of playing with like the heavier themes but they take it like way farther than everybody else like yes. run dmc is kind of like aerosmithy and then you get beastie boys who are pushing a little harder than that yeah. you know acdc acdc but then pe is like full-on slayer noise collage sound bombs the entire album sirens wailing the entire time i just couldn't get over how aggressive a record it is sonically. totally and uh i have my copy right here and rick rubin is the first person listed as an executive producer so you gotta think there's a little influence there though as you may have heard on twitter he knows nothing about music he's such, <laughs> he's, such he, he's he's so good at playing media like that like he's 
I don't know. I forget. A week's who... worth of discourse for a tossed off comment on sixty minutes. Seriously, it's like <laughs> of, it's like of course he knows sort of how a mixing desk works. Like right. there is there was a whole TV show where that's all he did. Totally was, was work a mixing desk with Paul McCartney or whatever. Yeah. So it's like I had to talk to my dad about this <laughs> yesterday. Not had to. I like talking to my dad about music and stuff. But my dad wanted to talk about the Rick Rubin sixty minutes interview with me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you know he just yeah he loves to he's he comes from the school i forget who posted it he comes from the wrestling pro rest pro wrestling uh, ethos yeah. he knows how to like play these sort of like he's playing the dumb guru thing right now and it's yeah. like and it's working so well because everybody's talking about it and everybody is like he he's always been good at that so i guess how much he had to do with the production of nation is is pretty yeah, it's, I, it's, I, I, I think don't... he received uh, tapes from Long Island when they came in and said, yes, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not to spoil it, but Hank talks a little bit about that in their, okay. their, their encountering of of, uh, of Rick Rubin and also being like, we could do this shit too. Um, yeah. Dave, Dave, you've, uh, you, you teach about Public Enemy. You've, you've talked to, to Chuck before. Um, I'm wondering, like, how do you think what is the right way to explain this shit to somebody who who never heard it? I'm sure you're dealing with 17 and 19 year olds who have just never heard it. Like how do you start? Um, I, I God, there, there's there's many ways I sort of dive into it. But I mean, I remember when I was young, um, you know, in high school and listening to Melly Mel or something, and that's sounding outdated. So when I play this shit for my kids, I'm like, yo, this is gonna be prehistoric sounding to you guys. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Rakim, like we have to contextualize everything in order for you to get the importance and genius of it. And so it, it, it's really hard. I think um, I sort of just liken it back to my own experience with Public Enemy. I don't have too many cool um, music stories when I was a kid, but when I was in fifth grade, um, my neighbor gave us gave me two tapes. And one was uh, NWA Straight Outta Compton and the other was, was Public Enemy. Dave's and, origin um, story. Man. <laughs> and, but as a kid, I gravitated towards um, Straight Outta Compton, right? It's hilarious. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can rap along. Raunchy. Right, totally. I mean, part of it was like, oh my God, can you believe what they're saying, you know? And right. so right. I actually wasn't really into Public Enemy as a fucking fourth or fifth grader, right? <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't until I was in maybe even later high school that I fully, fully appreciated it. And so um, I tell my kids that, look, this is, you have to contextualize it. And if you don't get it now, um, there are overarching things that eventually you'll get, even if you don't like the aesthetic of the music. And then once you bring up the aesthetic of the music, then you have to dive into the Bomb Squad's crazy yeah. texture and sort of the whole history with sampling as well. So just Public Enemy as an entry point, um, as um, a guide to teach a course, um, a lesson in a course. Um, there's so many. There's so many things you can use as a springboard, and um, it's a. Well, I mean, the the album is a wealth of knowledge, and um, I just I try to teach my kids that without pushing it on them. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So to sort of bring it back, like in the same way that I didn't get Public Enemy and as a fifth grader until I was like a sophomore in high school, I think eventually they'll get it as older adults. Yeah, that's fair, and then I like to. I like to think that uh, the timeless music will will reach where it needs to go. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering. I have uh, uh, vinyl heads assembled here. Um, what is what does the Public Enemy vinyl go for? Like, what's the what's the market 
for oh that's uh, interesting um i'm on discogs right now because i was looking up something about apocalypse 91 in, in case i'm going to talk about it so i will tell you uh let me go to this record though actually um come back to me in a sec I, I will I will come back to you momentarily, Jason. It, uh, I, I related a story to the bros that listeners will hear later about how I found a $99 Public Enemy t-shirt with a hole in it at a vintage um, fucking flea market. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you how does that strike you? Does that I mean, do you feel like um, Public Enemy is is now on the level of one of those groups that people can identify even if they don't know what it is? That's a great question. I'm not 100% sure, you know, cultural cachet wise, they're huge among, you know, people my age and older, you know, our age or whatever. I, I, they're, they're one of the most immediately recognizable, not just because of the logo, although that's a huge part of it too, right? Like listening to this record, I was blown away at what a, like, I don't want to sound too cheesy, but I will. What a like overall savvy media creation this yeah. this mm -hmm. this group is, right? From I mean, don't believe the hype is hilarious. They're like basically mm -hmm. they're they're like they're goofing on themselves in a certain way. They're like cutting off like it's it I was just blown away at what a complete like um package it is, sort of conceptually. And so I feel like anybody who engages with this music completely understands it because they do such a good job enveloping you in the whole world of that, mm. they've, that they've created outside of that like if you're like kind of a younger person coming up or whatever i don't yeah i have to wonder i mean the farrakhan references probably come across as dated to most people you know i mean so there's that element um but i don't know i wonder i really wonder like if they are recognized to the degree that they should are they in the rock and roll uh thing? yes they 2013 are in the rock and roll yeah 2013 okay. in uh, um inductees yeah it's funny I, uh we were on this I th rock I thought and roll so. hall I thought of fame so. podcast and we the only we guessed them all except for uh biggie and tupac which we we deemed the uh, best <laughs> rapper ever coastal edition and then all the other sure. people who are on the rock and roll hall of fame are def jams 80s roster it's such yeah, a weird thing much. that they have done um, I have the vinyl pricing report here. Um, the, there are so okay. many different pressings of this. The actual right. real OG from US Def Jam single LP is about $30 to $100. And there's so many different okay. pricing okay. or uh, condition things. And do you have the inner sleeve thing? So I wouldn't call it right. a rare or a sweated record because it sold so well, especially internationally. There are pressings in Italy, yeah. France, Japan, Greece. Like this record made its way around the world in a way that I think is the reason we're talking about it kind of. Yeah. But, and all records are expensive now. So I'm not saying a hundred dollar record is not a big deal. I'm just saying like for, for what this is, for the cultural artifact that it is, it doesn't quite have a pricing to match because it sold well at the time, I suppose. Yeah, uh, went platinum in 1989, and just just to give you a sense of like how uh, the rap game has changed, right? Like something that was so political, so challenging, uh, could also be like super popular. At, it's at party time. music, which is something yeah, I've been thinking level, a lot about right. while I listen to this. I'm like, this is like a 120 BPM dance song about mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. And right. when I was a kid, we we did have like dance parties in the living room to music like this. Um, 
I Flava Flav is in New Jack City and New Jack City is like super important to me growing up. So that might have been the first time I was aware of what they looked like. And it's just um, it's the same thing of like the tempos were so high that it just um, it brings such a huge amount of energy to a room that it is played in and like you know we we all dj occasionally or pretend to at least and um it's not something i usually bring when i go out to dj mm -hmm. maybe i'll do like the pete rock shut them down remix or something yeah, but yeah i don't, I don't heads. music that fast kind of so it's just funny to me to think about how popular it was how huge it was and that people were dancing to this like political statement is just fascinating and, and that is by design like if you listen right. to yo Bar Mush, right. the show that's very much still in a kind of a head naughty space um but i think it had something to do with them being like college radio djs and wanting to uh rock the party politically and we still um, talk about this but we talk about it slightly differently we notice when rappers start playing festivals and then their next album is their electronic album and i think right. public <laughs> enemy was such a huge international touring concern that they wanted to like make sure stuttgart was feeling every fucking you know <laughs> bass hit in their chest <laughs> Yeah, it even, and it even opens, right, with the sort of, like, the BBC or whatever, kind of like, so you, it is crazy to imagine what a huge, or what a sort of known quantity they were going into this record. Not, you know, maybe not, certainly not the top of where they were going to get in terms of commercial or, or even critical success, but they were a big deal, and, and they're already writing. It's like they doubled down on the controversy with this record. They just, oh, like, absolutely. absolutely, they just, like, and I kept thinking about how strange, you know, when you, when we talk about, like, whether or not Public Enemy is, like, known on, like, a broad pop cultural scale, they might, I think they are, but but Flava Flav definitely is, right? Like, oh, he, man. there's people who know who Flava Flav is who, don't know who public enemy is and it's so crazy to hear his deployment on this record specifically as this sort of like subversive edge that ends up i mean chuck d's just got so much gravitas so much like power so much command but just to have this complete weird streak running through the record as well sort of not doing the rest of what everything else that is doing like it's such a weird it doesn't sound like it would work but just like the production on paper the production doesn't sound like it would work either none of it sounds like it would work and yet it it totally, totally works. does yeah yeah, that's uh, stand up for me on this album is Cold Lamp and the Flave. I mean, um, it, it's uh, it's so it's much fun, fun, you know. Yeah, totally, and, it, and it's uh, such a like dichotomy for to the rest of the album. And, and let's put it out here, Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was his whole shit. Like every uh -huh. time he he sat down to rap, he was doing a Flavor Flav. That's so Flavor. I remember at the oh, time like you're biting Flavor Flav, sir. Under that the is. That's so funny. I never, I never, I never put two and two together, but I mean, you're Same. definitely, you're definitely right. I thought that from the, like, I mean, I knew I, because I know this record and because I know this group, I mean, I, I know we're in for the, for the heavy political side of it, you know, but I, I did find myself laughing at how, uh, how pop culture and riffy it is too. I mean, I, I just like clock references to like all my favorite shit, like Yoko Ono, Columbo, uh, Ca Captain Kirk gets a, gets yeah. a name drop. And it's like, most of the time it's just Flav just saying something weird. Totally. <laughs> you know? It's like, 
Yeah. Um, I think we can all agree that please disagree if you don't, that public enemy doesn't work without Flava Flav. Like that oh, totally yelling right. at you for right. an hour is much right. less fun than that. And I would it's, bring it's up Paris. That okay, it's... I was ex- ex- going to make that exact point. <laughs> yeah, it's sorry. Like, that's why Paris, who was popular and who was yeah. an important artist and who we've actually talked about a weird amount on this show. Uh, without talking to him but like it, it's like after a while it gets a little okay dude i get it like black panthers and stuff okay cool like right. you need you it's, need something else i mean yeah. he's the comic relief right Flay. i mean he's the roles yeah. are so clearly defined in public enemy which is which is something that i understood even as a kid you know chuck is the yeah. president Flay is the jester you know what i mean yeah. and yeah for, i mean for what it's worth i mean he's perfect at the role that he's in terminator yeah. Terminator X does the scratches. You know that because every time the scratches <laughs> Terminator X. <laughs> totally. What a, what was, a great name. What a great presence. Um, I don't know if people have listened to eyeglasses. it. eyeglasses. Uh, yeah, he has like, what great sunglasses. Him and Brian Bosworth shopping at the Oakley store. Um, <laughs> what's it called? They, uh, they, his, his album, Valley of the Jeep Beats, is a very mm-hmm. interesting side thing to yeah. Public mm-hmm. Enemy that people should hear. It's just it's I don't like, know that, that one. It's yeah. just... So freaking loud it's just a loud record it's just meant to be played like at ear splitting volume and it's i'm not saying it's a like super good record i'm saying it's like you take all that stuff out of public enemy and what are you left with is this intensely loud like banging 80s kind of gated drum sound for a long time and it's a super interesting thing it reminds me of when dj hurricane was the bc boys dj Mm -hmm. and it was fairly basic dj stuff right now that the years later they get mixmaster mike and go into like the quantum realm of different scratching and every beat is a change and stuff but public enemy stayed and now dj uh is it dj lord is public enemy's dj yeah. and yes. still, still yeah. plays with them and the fact that public enemy with the internal tension of chuck and flave is an ongoing concern and you can like book them for shows today is insane yeah yeah yeah, yeah they're they're still together and i feel like um that is something that you can't kind of gloss over a lot of their contemporaries uh haven't managed to stay together but in part it's because they can still fucking tour like and i caught public enemy maybe five years ago um in san francisco and they still have it it's i caught yeah, wu-tang cool. three years ago and like mm, four fifths you know four ninths of them don't have it anymore like they don't have the wind <laughs> um but but chuck still he still has the wind um and is still rapping at 120 bpms and and doing push-ups at the same time um jason what what is what is your cut of off of this album if you had to pick one of like this is my jam off a nation of millions oh man that's a tough one because it because like it's it's a record that feels like super album oriented in a certain way you know even though it feels it it did feel kind of long every now and then uh to me like i really enjoy the record but i listened a, a lot over the last you know week or whatever and there would be times where i'm like yeah they they didn't skimp a lot on this record but that said there's not a lot it, there's not a lot i would want to cut either if i were in charge you know what i mean so like i kind of mm-hmm. kind of get it both ways um I mean, I think that like Louder Than a Bomb is like an extremely incredible song. And I really, really liked that one. But I also found myself like listening to Terminator X to the Edge of Panic a lot. Just in terms of like that pure bombastic uh, um, 
when you say that they that they're still pretty good live, I can get it because there's like a a showmanship to that mm. one sonically. Mm. And then also, I kept. I mean, this record is just like obnoxiously loud and is obnoxiously like aggressive in a in a great way. I found myself also thinking about like New York at the time, right? So Sonic yeah. Youth and things like that. Even the total abrasive. I'm so I can't wait to hear your guys' interview with Shockley. I mean, yeah, I just I, yeah. I can't wait because like the production that they brought to this is insane. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I would say I'd say louder than a bomb because I just like I think from the first moment I ever heard that song, I felt like it had, I had always known that song somehow, you know, like right, right. The, the clarity of that one is really good. But I also I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. I, it's it's a tough one because because I because I was thinking, yeah, I'll let you guys go. That was, that was my cut too. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the one that uh that Nate chose. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's just it's kind of packed full of uh of amazing songs. We didn't touch on it too much in this episode, but uh, the cultural impact of Public Enemy and kind of you know I will always tell anybody who will listen. I have two people who radicalized me: Chuck D and Ice Cube. And like the way of in a political, you know, we talked about the the Farrakhan samples and such, but in a time where there was no internet, the introduction of so many ideas and concepts of like, hey, the draft is kind of dumb. Like, yeah. you yeah. know what I mean? Like just something that very simple. He didn't even belabor it. He was just like, right. uh, they're, they're asking me to serve for this government. The fuck why? And I was, right. I was 12, like, yeah, the fuck why? Um, so oh, yeah. It, it's a it's a hugely influential record both musically and politically uh jason you can't wait to hear the interview and hopefully neither can the listeners but tell us a little bit about your uh your podcast as we we round off here uh i host a podcast called aquarium drunkard transmissions and you can find it also on the talk house podcast network and it just features my uh usually one-on-one -on -one, but sometimes there's a couple people uh two or three uh, folks at a time and we'll talk about creativity and their process and uh you know oftentimes just kind of let the conversation drift into maybe interesting places so that's uh people can check that out and then i do a thing with my friend sam means called wasteoids which is like a whole little little network that we're doing oh, here nice. in arizona with like nice. videos videos and podcasts so folks can check that out too and uh yeah uh, right Transmissions on, is one of my very favorite shows. It is my respite from the hip hop news cycle where I go to hear the <laughs> thoughts and feelings of other kinds of musicians. And if uh, people listening to this want to check out an episode of Transmissions to see if it's their flavor, I highly, highly recommend the most recent Jim Jarmusch episode, which came out during the pandemic and was is one of my favorite podcast episodes ever. It is a, a masterpiece, um, both Jason's contributions, the esteemed director's contributions, and it's just so cool to hear people talk about their art. And it's not necessarily his filmic art, and I don't want to spoil it for people, but Jim Jarmusch says some things in there about collage and the world at large that like moved me tremendously, and I'm such a huge fan of uh, the way Jason lets the conversation breathe and how he does his thing. And so um, check that out. And, um, you know, it's so cool to be label mates too. <laughs> right. It's, it's awesome. I love, I love, I love your guys' show. It's, it's, I really appreciate you guys having me on for sure. Yeah. Real super fun, dude. Thank you. Thanks Jason. And now we'll get into it. This is our interview 
with producer Hank Shockley, Dead Bod Rap Pod. Dad Bod Rap Pod, every week we talk to people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture. This week is no different. We have literal legend on the line with us in Zoom, 2013 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, and more importantly, the co-founder of Public Enemy, uh, composer, sound designer for the new movie, yay, Mr. Hank Shockley. How's it going, man? I'm good. Thank you. How's everything going? Good. We're doing great. It's so great to have you on the line as a as a longtime uh, Public Enemy fan. Uh, of course, very familiar with your work. I'm curious to know, um, you started as a producer at really the, the dawn of, of hip hop production. And I kind of just wanted to know, like, what what gave you the idea that you uh, could make production for rap music in a in an era where that was just starting to be a thing like what what was the culture what was the environment what were the tools that we were using that that kind of got you into it well that's a that's a good question um i think that the the time was uh it was a it was an early time of hip-hop when hip-hop was using live bands and live instruments mainly and the and the landscape of r&b music was also bands and live instrumentation and um i uh we had me and chuck had approached russell simmons uh about you know we wrote a song for run dmc because we were fans of run dmc and we wrote a song called god bless us usa got it so and um russell uh didn't like it he said (laughs) he didn't want to do anything political and or, or that sounded too serious or too conscious or whatever the case may be. So we said, all right, that's cool. And uh, we said that uh, we want to do it. And we asked him, would he produce it? And he, and he said, uh, no, I can't, but I can refer you to Rick Rubin, who can produce it. And, um, and so I did some research on Rick stuff. And, and when I heard, uh, you know, um, uh, not I need a beat, but uh, gosh, the Tila Rock song. It's yours. It's yours. Tila Rock song is yours. Yeah. And um, when I heard that song, I said, wait a minute, hold up. Because at the same time, I was producing, you know, along with my brother, we were producing like demos for uh, local rap artists, you know, one of them being the leaders of the new school and mm-hmm. uh, Son of Berserk and, you know, and a, and a few other cats that we had in the neighborhood, Kings of the Pressure. Um, so we, we, we was basically had a drum machine and we would cut samples in the chorus and we would play them on our local radio station that we was, that we was at, at the, at the, at, uh, uh, at Delphi university, which was WBAU. And so we played those songs on, you know, those demos, those demos on our, on our, um, on our, on our show. And we were like, wait a minute you know he's doing pretty much what we can do so we so i so i decided we decided that you know let's see you know 
if we can produce, you know, our own material. And that's pretty much, you know, how producing usually starts. It's never, it's never a situation where you think you always think that you can't do it. Mm. And so you walk in there thinking like, wow, I want the whole the Russell Simmons, Larry Smith productions. <laughs> you know, I wanted something big and lush because those are the records that, that was, that we were feeling that was, that was lighting up the parties. And uh, so you feel like, well, damn, you need to get a producer until you actually get in the studio and start working. And then you start to realize that, you know, there's things that you would do that somebody else might not see. Mm. And, and so for me, it's, it was more about, you know, I, I was always interested in records because I had, you know, I have a collection of records that was am- it's amazing. And, and I was just, I've been collecting records since I was like four years old. And so I have, a, you know, and my father was a massive jazz collector. So I, so he had like every album, you name it, from Thelonious Monk to Cannonball Adley to Coltrane to Art Blakey. I mean, we can, and so I was listening to music from records more so than I've listened to bands. Mm. Because I've always thought that listening to a band to me was, was always up. Um, it wasn't the same experience when you listen to a band live as when you hear the records for some reason. And I couldn't understand that dynamic. But so I had a lot of records and I just said, well, look, why don't we just make records from records? And, and, it, and at that time, it was, pretty, it was pretty revolutionary because, you know, people was like, well, wait a minute, you know, you're walking into a studio and there's no synthesizers <laughs> there's only there's only a turntable a mixer and a and uh and uh, a sampler and 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 even the engineers at the time was like okay well what are we doing here <laughs> and so the the whole process then you know we had to retrain and relearn everybody that was actually in the studio environment and in the record company because they didn't have an understanding of what it is that we were what we was trying to do because they thought we was just a bunch of cats that was just going in there pretty much making a lot of nonsense or noise if you want to call it uh i've heard chuck talk about at a time that rap music was something that you did on top of music that it in itself wasn't music and i heard you just talk about how you know making records from records do you do you think that rap sits on that same kind of plane with with instrumentation? Do you make a differentiation differentiation between those two, like sampling um, versus instrumentation? Well, no, I, I me personally, no, because I, you know I have a different way of looking at sound. I don't look at sound as being good or bad. I just look at it as being different. Uh, when I when I grew up, we grew. I grew up on AM radio. And, and then FM radio be, became the thing. And why did it become the thing? Because FM radio had a wider frequency range and AM radio had a narrow frequency. But I didn't look at them as being better or worse. I just look at one as being different because you got a different feel from, from listening to an AM radio record than that same feel that you get listening to something on full, full frequency on, on FM. And so that's, that's kind of like my backdrop. And so I, so when I listen, when I listen to music, I don't look differentiate between something that was made with with all live 
or something that was made from sampling. The only difference is, is what is the aesthetic that you want to get? What is the feeling that you want to emote? Because they're totally two different situations, two different scenarios. That's uh, that's super interesting. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, I'm interested in um, your guys' roots and how you're in an outer borough of New York, and so much of the creativity in hip hop in the '80s came from that area. Do you think there's like something about being both insiders and outsiders that made you think differently about the music at that time? Does that make sense? Well, yes. Um, here's here's the thing. You know, people like to give rap this kind of like geographical footprint, and I don't think that rap had a ge. I don't think it was much of a geog geographical footprint as people put it out to be. For example, yes, the Bronx was the ones that 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 kind of like commercialized it and institutionalized it because those guys was those guys were cutting edge and ahead of the curve in terms of technology in terms of in terms of you know the rhythm the voice the whole nine their whole that the whole situation but also was harlem and also was brooklyn and also was queens and also was long island so it was kind of a community because all those guys pretty much played in and outside these areas and so we got a chance to listen to what i consider to be some of the the early technicians of hip-hop you know and, and and was a huge fan of grandmaster flash you know and 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 not just because of the fact that he cut the turntable i think that for me grandmaster flash taught me a lot about about the intrinsic value of the record and what's being played inside it and how he can manipulate it and he also taught me a lot of the marketing aspects of what he was doing because Flash is underrated as the marketing person because if you understand the reason why his name catapulted above everybody else's is because he had his marketing was 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 Grandmaster Flash coming out of the city which is the Flash with, with records in his hand all right so that that icon right there stood stood with me and, and took and took me to the point where i said wow not only do you have to be good at the 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 technical side of it or the you know the the performing side of it but you also got to be a master at the marketing side of it as well and that's when i saw that flat that's why flash to me have peaked out above and the reason why i say he peaked out above is because he got outside of the bronx faster and and gained more record recognition to the fans because of things like that and so that's the that was a those that time was a pivotal moment for me in terms of of understanding music because i came from a jazz background that went into r&b and funk and then and then also you know had a calypso and reggae background as well so so with all of that when i saw the the rappers actually rapping that changed the, the whole frequency because now you you can you can now have a lower entry for getting into the business as opposed to before you had to be a stellar musician now you don't have to be none of us were musicians you know even though the eric eric sadler was to me was the musician he could play he could play bass he could play guitar he could play drums but we wasn't trying to do that. We wanted to do something that was totally different. 
and 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 that's where the the record and understanding the records through and through and what they mean and how how you can manipulate them and all that stuff came into play oh that's so cool um speaking of kings of pressure earlier i grabbed this out of my stacks a little bit earlier i know you can't really read it but it's a it's a kings of pressure 12 on let's go which i, I don't remember seeing that's around a lot um can you just tell me a little bit about them like were they just neighborhood guys? Did they did they make a very big splash? I know they had a couple of singles and a record on early MTV, but like, can you just tell us a little bit about the group and working with them? Well, it's funny because what we did was we kind of like had a casting call, um, and we actually went into the, in the neighborhood and we wanted to, you know, have a bunch of guys that we knew that could rap at the time because you have to understand something. Rap was a was a very uh, how would you say it was a very niche vibration at that time only those people that was really that was really into it knew anything about it and from that little bit of people there was only a few of them that actually could do it so we had to, so that's why we did this kind of like casting call because we was kind of like looking for to build this kind of like rap supergroup uh a la Grant furious five a la treacherous three or 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 um of you know any one of the the groups that I think were were at the time that's that was that was the that was the goal and and so by coming across them we we picked what we thought was the best of the five that was that was out there and then we did a demo with them for the radio station keep in mind that everything that we was doing was specifically played for the radio station we just needed more material because at the time there was few rap records that were being printed and 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 put out there but we had so much time that we had to fill up. So we had to fill it in with, with filler, so to speak. And that's when we just started to do these, these demos, so to speak. That's, that's super dope. Um, I'm curious to know about like the bomb squad sound and what you guys were able to do in an era before all the modern production equipment. Right. Um, I think even for somebody to recreate what y'all did, with a, a modern pro tools or something would still be super difficult but was there ever a thought of like um simplifying it at all it's very dense it's very complex a lot of people was like it's layers of noise and sound was that always the the goal or did you guys kind of arrive there over time through experimentation um kind of kind of like uh, a little bit of both in a way and 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 the reason why I, I'm saying that is because the goal was to do something that I I think that I didn't hear, mm. uh, which was layering and dancing the the music. Because most of the time, if you listen to a lot of the records at the time, it was basically a beat mm-hmm. and uh, maybe a melody line, and then you know rap pretty much. So it was a, and a scratch on top of it. So there was kind of like three elements to me that you that you heard i w- wanted something a little bit more denser than that something that that remnants of 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 a band like earth wind and fire you know cool in a gang or you know there's confunction there's all these bands that was that had like 11 pieces in there and and right. there was a lot of things that were going on if you listen to the early herbie hancock records and and things like that there was a lot of lot of instrumentation going on and the idea was to replicate that scenario on on in the studio 
but without using the band, but by using pieces of all these records. And that's what made the, 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 the job so difficult because you had to find the right piece for the right situation. It's, it, it's pretty easy to take a, a two-bar loop and loop it over. And I'm not saying that that's not good. I don't get into the, to the, to the, to the quality of it. I, I, or I just look at the fact that it, it's pretty easy to take two bars and loop something. Now, let's say if you have to turn those that 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 loop into eighth notes, mm. that two bars is an eternity, and you can't right. repeat yourself over and over. Otherwise, that thing gets a little boring. So you got to find ways of 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 adding a lot more sequences inside that. And that took that's where the that's why the bomb squad was there. It's not because that one of us could have could have produced the record by ourselves. But the the problem was is that it that wasn't the mission. The mission was we had to go through hundreds of records to come up with one song. Right. Because you 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 probably you guys probably know when you're making when you're looking for that sample, you, you you're not gonna find that on the first record you pull up. Right. So you, it's going. It takes it takes a lot of digging, so to speak, and to go through all those things to find those right moments, those right pieces, those right those right uh, those right phrases for the right second in that time. And then when you got it to, to that level, now you have to figure out how is it going to fit in with the BPM. Keep in mm. mind, no time stretching. Yeah. Like it is today. So we had to invent those things. So, so what was time stretching to us? Well, we have a turntable. Now we play with the speeds on the turntable because if you if you look listen to Public Enemy Number One, it's 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 basically a a, a record from the James Brown experience, but sped up at forty five. That technique we used a lot because mm. now I could take. I could take a song, for example. Let's say uh, I'm I'm on a we're on a SP twelve hundred, for example, where you're only getting two point five seconds per pad. All right, so now you I got two point five seconds. How do I get How do I get something that I think that's a a a, bar, a measure or two measures long into that? And especially if right. it's a if it's a slow groove, I have to speed it up. Sometimes we'll run it up to, to 78 and then bring it in and then pitch it down. down. Uh, this is what this is where you get that that grungy kind of dark-ish, you know, all the artifacts are stretching and things of that nature. And that to me gave the character, gave it soul. Uh, it, it definitely did. And it's a as a sound which actually kind of stands out in time. It hasn't actually been replicated. Uh, really in rap music, it's kind of, it seems like rap music post-Public Enemy is on a journey to become smoother and and kind of more synthesized. But uh, I feel like you came about in the era where sampling wasn't necessarily illegal. Uh, That's true. There weren't, there, the laws weren't kind of worked out around that. Do you feel like um, rap would be in a better place if there were more simple just sample laws it's very easy to cover a song but to get the sample rights is a is a whole thing not that i'm an expert well well yeah i think i think that what happened is is that the the, the samples uh took the situation and made and de de-democratized the the the, the situation mm -hmm. 
And, mm. and, and the reason why I'm saying that is it became only for the elites. For example, yeah. uh, Jay-Z can take the, uh, the, uh, the moments and, mm-hmm. and, and, and create uh, New York, New York from that record because he can afford to pay whatever it costs to, to, set, to, to, to clear that. And, and, right. and it, was a heavy, it was a heavy price tag. And so now somebody that was coming up can't even afford to go near that. And so I think that I think that in a way it affects the creativity a little bit a bit. And 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 this is the this is a big thing that that I that I've always been saying because I think that the sample loss has has been kind of like unfair to to the to the uh I, I want to call it the 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 newbie to the newbie musician that wants to get in and 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 make something quick, got some great ideas, but don't necessarily play or don't d- decide they doesn't want to play. You know, I can I can make a record really quickly, but with the fact that you have to you have to you have to clear your samples and 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 even if you're using a a, a quarter note, even if you're using a you know a, a sixteenth of a note, they want you to they want you to clear that. I think that that's that's where I I, I think that the, the laws need had needed to change. Using two bars, eight bars, four bars, whatever that case, I understand. But now when you're talking about micro bits when you, uh a eighth note a 16th note those things should be treated as as just free fair use absolutely um that that seems evident at this point and uh obviously stifles creativity which the goal should be to have that um those options available for people um switching gears a little bit i'm curious how you found your way to film and scoring and sound design can you talk us through that a little bit what was the initial inspiration for you to move into that field well the 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 first um the first uh i guess the first iteration of it was uh, a gentleman by the name of ernest dickerson and Mm -hmm. um neil moritz and and david Heyman uh came to me uh about this films that they had called juice and they had just discovered uh this exciting new actor uh by the name of tupac and um and when i saw the film you know i I immediately got into it and the reason why i got into it was because you know at the time you know hip-hop and film was always about was always about very very uh commercial you know, uh, almost like, oh, we're glad to be here. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we don't have no depth to our, our vibration, <laughs> but we're going to dance and pop and do, and which is all, which is all cool. But the thing that I was, I was looking for a story. And when, when they came across and they, and they pr- pr- played me the story, some, I seen some of the scenes and I was, I was watching and I was like, wow, this is taking hip hop to another level and that's what that's what what sparked me into into getting involved in it and 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 of course from a sonic level what we did was was what i consider to be at that point very basic and rudimentary and 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 the reason why is because the technology wasn't there for example we had to use we had to use midi now at that time you couldn't there was midi did not uh sync up with film mm. like it does now mm. all right so so therefore we had to we had to use the sbs 80 
which uh, which had to, which you had to write the code in to the and burn it onto the film and then and then have the code play back the stuff that you've created in order that it ma- and hope that it matched up and keep oh, in wow. mind that when I, and when we got the scenes in in there, they were all in parts. So, for example, I I, I had these. I remember these big um, uh, 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 half uh, half inch tapes that I, that I would get that were basically like VHS tapes that you slide them in and you and you get like a a, a number of times for for a scene. And then that scene might cut off in the middle, and then you got to put in another one to finish it off to see the next part of it. And so that's that created yeah. another uh, 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 issue that that had to be overcome, and and lo and behold, I mean, with a lot of with a lot of work, we we've gotten a chance to make it as smooth. The 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 it, it the the sync was correct and smooth throughout the entire film, but it was very minimum and bare because we didn't get a chance. We didn't get too much of a chance to to watch it over and over. So thus, the, I, I thus, the thing that came out of that was the fact that we created tension that was not there through 808s. Mm. And at that time, there was no films out there that didn't have subs now. You think you, we were going back to the old movie theater where you got the little voice of the theaters yeah. in there, and that was pretty much it, all right? And so, the, so, the, so doing that was, we created a massive challenge in, in the mixing of it as well, because mm. no recording studios had no no subs. Now keep in mind that we're DJs. We've already had eighteen inch. We understood the whole <laughs> yeah. uh, the whole frequency of subs, and that was a standard to us. And in my studio, that was my 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 production studio had the full range of speakers, so I can listen to it properly in there. But then when we go and transfer that over into a recording studio, we're missing half the you're missing half the what I consider half the experience because a lot of that was was in the tension and keeping it and keeping mm. it together, and then the you know and then the other thing was was the fact of 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 adding the soundtrack to it, making sure that 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 I had a lot of artists that was in the that was in the film, a lot of records in the film, which is which will be massively costly today. Mm. That you that you can do so so that was another innovation that you probably you won't even see the that the those the, these films like that anymore where you have that amount of 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 source music that's being loaded into the film and and that that was, to me was two things that I think that that made that that experience you know pop out and that to me is where and and that and that film did did massively well um um considering the fact that it was it was uh, it was a very niche uh, genre at the time. Yeah. Uh, now I want to go back and listen to for for the subs in in juice. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you've gone on to do a, a bunch of film work, and in fact, uh, you've scored and composed music for a new film called Yay. And uh, reading some of the promo, it says that you designed the sound to be a character in the film. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and that approach? Yes. Um, I mean, when, when John, um, when John Adeke J cave gave me the, uh, the, the, the footage on it. Uh, and I, and I saw once again, going back to the juice scenario, 
I saw that the story was really, really good. And that's that to me, that's the that's the first premise of of any of any film. If the story's great, then then we can do something with it. And and what he had in there, he had a temp piece of music in there. Uh and it was um 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 uh gosh, uh I'm I'm it's drawing a blank now. It was a Fele Kute song. Uh yes. um called uh wow what's the name of it uh come on 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 uh water getting no enemy zombie uh huh no 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 hold on hold on trouble sleep oh we can cut this we can cut all this stuff yeah i will do we'll do yeah yeah uh it was a uh it was called trouble sleep and he and he and in the middle of that it's a it's a funeral piece and that and that part was used to represent the ceremony of of the film and and when i when i heard that i said wow that to me was the cornerstone of it of, of course we just want to take that that record out but i said no let's 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 clear that and use that as the as the as the centerpiece mm. now with that in mind the entire score is built around that song oh interesting Okay. OK, so now so so when you when you when you when you listen to it, you can you can play the score on top of it, of that song, and it fits perfectly. Interesting. <laughs> OK, OK, so 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 that changes the frequency of what's happening. That means that it moves into the space of it almost being a musical mm. or okay. a music video. <laughs> mm. that's where the lines get blurred and and of course the sound design you know because you know when 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 john gave it to me he gave it to me without the uh, the dialogue wasn't cleaned up or any of the other stuff and so so that gave me a, a really good chance to hear it in its raw stages and by hearing it in its raw stages the first thing that i wanted to do was make sure that 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 the sound design was part of the DNA of the raw footage, the raw sound footage that was mm. in there. So the stuff that's happening in the background that you're supposed to take out and all that, you're supposed to reduce the noise and bring it down. Uh, or I wanted to, I use that as the elements to create the the score. So that so that there's a there's this kind of like. Uh, you don't know where the score begins and the sound design. Mm. Does. All right, it's kind of the thing that I that I I got from when we was doing uh, American Gangster, and and one of the things that I did because I didn't do the score for that film, but what I did do was all the source music. So okay. and, that, and 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 keep in mind that was a that was a period piece. So what had to be done was I had to create. I had to think about 1963 to 1970 and figure out what was going to be the kinds of songs that you would hear then, but I, but not using songs that was already out because if, because if you was in 1969 or you were in 60, whatever the, the, the time was, you, you would never, you would hear a new song, totally right. new to, totally fresh to the ear. So the idea was to create a totally fresh song with the same feeling and vibration that would that would match. So when you're li- when you're watching it, you're feeling like you're back in that scenario. 
All right, you're back, you're in that film. And so, so the same thing, same thing for here is that I want to make sure that that I I, I created stems for every because because now that I, I can create the songs, now I have stems. Now all the songs are are in multi-channel pieces. Mm. So now the score can blend seamlessly into because I into the into the source music and the source music blends seamlessly back into the score. That was something that 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 I wanted to do because I got tired of hearing uh, when you hear a song into a movie, you it always cuts off, and most of the time right. it cuts right. off abrupt and they put some echoing effect on it on the back of it. Right. And then you go like, okay, all right, but what happens if you just made it just dissolve and mm. then it and then the score picks up right off of it mm. and now you now you don't know you went from one phase to another phase and that transition was massively seamless those are the kinds of things that i i try to get in and and going back to yay the same vibration is done there that's why we we that's why the, the next thing that i want to do was take the yay situation and and record it and mix it in Atmos. Why Atmos? Most people think that oh, it's a gimmick. It's something that you just want to do. It's surround sound and oh, yeah, we understand that it's, it's a it's it's different because it's more of an immersive environment. And the idea was not to not to do the trickery that that things floating and bouncing all around. That's easy. What I wanted to do was put you in the space. So if if she's in the car, you feel like you're in the car. car. If mm. they're outside, you feel like you're outside. So the idea, so so keeping that in 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 in, in mind, I want to create an experience that brings the the viewer closer into the into the film. That's so cool, man! I just really appreciate that explanation, and uh, really looking forward to seeing the film even the trailer it starts with this kind of foreboding sense and you, this bright visuals with this kind of um sound that sets things off and just shows you it's not going to be your average trailer or ride it's just you're in a different environment um right away so um congratulations on that and hoping um all of us get to experience us that soon uh, we're gonna kind of round the corner here and i'd like to ask you something i ask a lot of the people we're lucky enough to interview who were involved in hip hop in early days, which is, do you keep up much with rap music? Like, do you listen to rap music recreationally or do you, do you care about the comings and goings and who, what the main artists are now or whatever your sense of that is? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, because once again, I'm still a fan. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, gosh, I was just listening to um, uh, the song by uh, uh, Kodak Black and Diplo, which I found okay. to be interesting. <laughs> and why is okay. that? It's 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 because it's because Diplo went with the more country slash uh, 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 what would you say alternative rock vibe, hmm. and to have Kodak on it created a whole new dynamic and those are the kinds of things that 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 interest me because i'm i'm i'm, I'm still a fan of of the music 
and and for a lot of people my age, they they sit there and go like, ah, oh, that stuff is crap, you know, and it's right. and it's not. I'm not really feeling with it. And yes, from a from a from a lyrical perspective, no, because it's not talking to us. Mm. It's talking to a different audience, yeah, a younger audience, and for them, that's a vibration. But what I get from them is the fact that when you're listening to these records, these guys got two seconds to prove themselves. Mm. It's not like we had, not like back in the days when we could go buy a record and we take it home and we listen to it and we go, right. or we put a tape in and we go, no, right. we're, we're excited. No, now today that stuff is coming on free every second. And so, and so how do you, how do you stand out? You got to make the, 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 the intro a hook. You got to make the verse a hook. You gotta yeah. make the chorus a hook. And that's how you that's how you keep the you keep the you keep the party going. Mm. And that's why I, I I'm 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 a fan of, of of the music that's out. As long as it's true to the as long as the artist is true to what their what their vision is and what they're trying to get across, it's it's all gravy to me. No, that's that's great to hear. And I, I did not expect that that response to that question. So that's, that's super dope. Uh, what's next for you? You've got yay is coming out soon. Uh, what other projects you got in the works? I'm, I'm infatuated with television now. Mm. Okay. I okay. think, yeah, I think television uh, needs a boost. Um, okay. It's, 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 it's moving, it's moving in, in the area where uh, the, 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 I would say the powers that be right now, it's everything that's on, that's on commercial TV today is all like cops and robbers. And, and, and I think that we need some stories, but we need some new stories, some new stories that that's talking to a, a new set of people that feel and, and, and vibrate like us, mm. like all of us, because mm. I believe, I think that, I think that, that the culture now is not just, it's not just about, it's not just segmented into race. It's segment. It's segmented into 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 uh, uh, vibration, and we mm. all have the list. It's like I, I can I can say words. It doesn't matter where I go. I can say, "Yo, that shit is dope, yo," and 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 that and that will that will always vibrate with anybody who's on that frequency. Mm. So we don't have to we don't have to no longer segment or 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 or, or how would you say tribalize our culture anymore. Our culture is mainstream. Mm. And and thanks in part to all your contributions, man. Uh, Hank Shockley, we just want to thank you for coming on the program. Oh, no problem. Thank you, guys, man. This was, a, this was a lovely interview, man. Probably one of the best interviews I've done, man. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's super. That is super dope to hear. <laughs> that means a lot to us. You're a legend in our eyes and in music and uh, just a huge pleasure to have some of your time. Thank you so much. All right, that was our conversation with Hank Shockley of the Bomb Squad. There's legends and then there's legends, right, Nate? Dude, uh, not someone I thought I'd ever get to talk to. Uh, So cool to be in his presence. So cool to hear 
his thoughts and um yeah just for me someone I, I i could not hold in a higher esteem um someone whose music i've been listening to for a long time whose music changed the way i think about music and yeah. um who's just been a part of so many things that are just foundational for my love of hip-hop and just a, a gracious gentleman as well yeah and he he um he's had a an incredible second act as well so i i appreciated him kind of filling us in on his his movie work and such. It's kind of great to see when artists can transition. And also one of the parts that's still been like kicking around in my head since we talked to him is he's still into music. Yeah, like, that was cool. Yeah, he's still into music and on kind of, uh, it reminded me of when EZAD was talking about like, I don't like everything that comes out, but the vibrations of it. Right. I, I fuck with and and, and Hank kind of had a, a similar disposition on on records. And, and so that that was always refreshing to hear um, from, you know, a, a straight up OG. Totally. I, um, I will say one of those will never surprise me as much as when Adisa Banjoko told us he was into Lil Skies. That's still the <laughs> that's still the high water mark for like for old dudes. Why did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, that... oh, you're you're not like into the music. You're like on the cutting edge. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, you must hang out with know. young people. <laughs> Low key, but he'll still do those posts of like, ah, when hip hop was real. I love my guy um but yeah no there wasn't too much of that with 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 hank he's he still um is uh actively involved in in making music the the movie yay seems really interesting despite the curious title and the timing of the title um i watched the trailer and hear him talk about the music uh was was great dave how did you you line up such a stellar booking i know you couldn't be present uh how how did it come together thanks for rubbing it in um i definitely (laughs) definitely um, wanted to be there. I mean, of the interviews I missed, I mean, this is sort of up there for the ones I really regret. Um, um, I just got it in because I, I've been working with uh, Chuck D's um, publicist for years. And this was like a side project that had something to do with the with the publicist. And um, it revolved around the, um, the film that you guys mentioned that um, Hank is working on. So uh, I immediately just put in a request. You know, it's not like I had a super close relationship specifically with the publicist, but I was like, we got to get in, you know, so yeah, um, that's how I did it, man. But I very much regret not being there. I mean, like Nate said, um, Bomb Squad is so foundational. I mean, um, for my class, I, I tell them that hip hop is is the genre that teaches you most about other music. And when you listen yeah. to one Bomb Squad song, there's like a thousand samples right there. Yeah, you know, it's the most textured um, production, really. And um, yeah, man, um, can't really looking forward to. Um, checking out the film and i'm really glad you guys had a chance to talk to him too absolutely and uh it's a shame that chuck d has been uh, busy every monday night at 5 30 pacific for the last <laughs> six years but we understand all right so yeah that that was a super dope interview um dave hasn't had a chance to hear it yet so we'll, right. i i, I want to ruin it for, for dave it. yeah trust it was a it was amazing he was a great guy to talk to he did and say it was one of his better interviews at the end when it's amazing. one of those like oh i can't believe this is happening god damn <laughs> wish it was there keep rubbing it in keep rubbing it in <laughs> yeah he was definitely rating. definitely uh praising the pod and i think um he could tell pretty early that like we were heads you know like which the, is always the it, pod no, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, it's it was it was dope to get some of his time and um, yeah, look forward to to peeping the film. But but also because of the, the synergies of the universe, it turns out that this year is the 35th anniversary of the release of uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, uh, Public Enemy's second album, um, genre shattering. I know they they would be like, oh, certain records are genre defining. Um, this record took the genre and just completely smashed it to bits and then reformed it. Um, it is considered one of the greatest albums of all time. And not just by people like us. Uh, I think it's like 42 on Rolling Stones, um, last albums of, you know, whatever their thing, not that that matters, but. Just below Cardi B. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right above, right above Flo Millie and, uh, right below Cardi B. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a time to kind of think about number one that that shit was thirty five years ago, which that's yeah that can't that, be true. You're gonna have to exactly. double check the math on that. <laughs> no, I, I fucked up last episode doing the math, but this is absolutely true. Um, yeah, the shit dropped uh, proper in eighty eight. Ended up making the Billboard charts. Rap is in a different place, uh, mm. or was in a different place at that time, ended up like really doing things on the billboard. And it was like a huge influential record. So we wanted to take some time to talk about some of the the standout cuts on It Takes a Nation of Millions. And Nate, I will start with you. you. You could really pick any track and just, you know, do a whole fucking dissection on any one of these tracks, right? Totally. Uh, we say this all the time, and it's sometimes more true, and sometimes it's not actually true. It's just something we say on the podcast. But like, I really could have done this episode without even listening to it again. You know what I mean? It's like I, I know it. You know what I mean? It's just in it's in my musical being. Um, but I did want to highlight a track, and I when I was listening back to it today, I I was just you know, trying to think about what makes it different from other records. And there's a lot of things and we're going to talk about them. And we did talk about them in the intro, but um, a track that really stood out to me today, which I never really considered one of my favorites, but I think has an interesting angle is louder than a bomb. And that is, you know, it's funny. I consider it to, this album is so thick with hits and hooks and amazing moments i kind of consider it to be later in the album but it's just the second to last song on side a like there's just <laughs> so a. much going yeah. on in this record it's crazy <laughs> and what yeah. i think is interesting about this the way this song is constructed is it's a little bit of a bait and switch they hit you with kind of like an easygoing like sampled beat and then flav does some kind of like it's it's flav doing flav but it's almost a little bit more like Poetic flave, if if you will. Um sure. she was spitting to Brigitte Nielsen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it and then it just kicks in and it's incredibly ferocious and it matches the energy that you come to expect from um this album is such a big bang. Yo, 
um, where he just like sent sounds hurtling into space and people caught them and received them and transmuted them and changed them and it changed the whole way hip hop sounded. And, uh, you know, uh, something else that I just want to mention is Chuck has never been a rapper that didn't have anything to say, but maybe on sure. this album, he's saying the most things per per block of time right it's <laughs> just for cubic foot of, of so repping. many yeah. topics it's just it, there's just yeah. a volume of stuff and it's funny um and you know i think we talked about this a little bit before how much farrakhan there is um yeah. it's just it's it's yeah. so farrakhan praising and uh, in line with uh the noi at the time and that was such a big thing i i've said this on the pod before but i think often about how much I heard about the nation of Islam growing up. Like mm-hmm. I've come from a non-religious household. I lived in the suburbs and I was like very aware of the teachings of minister Farrakhan. It's just a weird thing. As um, Bob that, would have wanted. Yeah. That didn't really <laughs> affect me, but um, it's just a thing I think about sometimes. Cause he really had um, the rap game in a chokehold. Like it was just uh, the, yeah. the thing to talk about, but that's one of thousands of things is my point. Um, so yeah. it's just a well-constructed song. I thought that the way that they kind of drew listeners in was very interesting on this one, but just, you know, a stellar cut amid, amidst so many stellar cuts. Oh man. No, that's a great choice. And um, I always love that song because even in 89, it's engaging with this idea of the right to sample. And like, he's talking about, you know, uh, some of the lawsuits and shit that they were starting to get into. And this is one of the great things about this record is it comes in that era where you could sample extensively. And we talked to to Hank Shockley a little bit about that. And so I feel like um, of that era before the laws really kicked in and kind of the wild west of that, um, they made amazing use of it. And then also, uh, having this meta commentary about it, um, which I I thought I thought was super dope. Uh, Mr. Dave Ma, you are often quieter than a bomb, uh, but, <laughs> but valuable nonetheless. Uh, what what was the the track that that you wanted to highlight? Um, well, you know, um, just quickly um, touching on you you mentioning the era, and I mean, I looked it up just just I looked this looked this up right before um, today's session just to make sure. Um, all the albums that came out. And Jesus, dude, 1988. I mean, in the back of my head, I already knew it was a powerful year, but it's absurd to see the list, right? Uh, Slick Rick, Greatest Adventures, uh, EPMD, Strictly Business, Critical Beatdown, By All Means Necessary, yep. um, the Jungle Brothers album, Life is Too Short. I mean, it just goes yeah. on and on. And having said that, um, to for this album to come out and still stand out, it's just absurd. And uh, my track is Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here is a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. Cold sweating as I dwell in myself. And I mean, that song, I, I was always drawn to it, I think. Um, initially as um, a young listener, it has um, an easy sense of listenability to it um, Mm -hmm. in comparison to the other tracks that are a little bit more frenzied, you know, but I think just the way um, Chuck kicks it off. um, I got a letter from the government, the way his voice iconic, iconic, beyond iconic, um, kicking down the door. It's one of the best 
um, starts to any song in any genre. And I was just looking at it, um, just watching the video like a couple months ago, randomly in a YouTube hole. And I'm just, I was struck by how young Chuck looked, but mm. also it reminded me of how his voice, he's always sounded like a, a, a 90 year old lecturer. Just, yeah. you know what I mean? His voice never kind of aged. It always just sounded bombastic, like since the start and just powerful. And um, the lyrics to that, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the rap songs. Um, it's one of the writings by Chuck where I think it's a little bit more linear. Sometimes he's just like hitting you with yeah. like so many ideas and emotions and stuff. With this one, it's like he's 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 storytelling, and yeah. um, with the way the beat hits too. So um, it's uh, it's hard for me to find a better um, Public Enemy song than that one. And and who in in 1988 was talking to you about decarceration and the lessons learned of Attica? And making a, a a video out of it. I mean, it was it was such right. heady, heady stuff, right? Um, well, I mean, you, you had um, by all means necessary, you know, which sure, obviously sure. touched on philosophy and some political uh, minded uh, statements as well. But I mean, Chuck did the way Chuck did this. I mean, <laughs> is just on a on a bigger scale. I think. Yeah, you, you can definitely see there was a sonic vision, um, and talking to Hank Shockley definitely helped reveal some of the thinking behind it in terms of how they put shit together. Uh, definitely had a vision. I remember getting in trouble for watching that video because my mom felt it was glorifying prison. Uh, mm. And she sat me down for a while and was like, look, I was like, no, mom, what he, this is what he's saying. <laughs> Trying to have this really heady conversation. She's like, no, 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 no. We don't go to prison. Prison's not fun. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, well, I joined the Nation of Islam, so no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I asked my mom for a bow tie immediately. David Ma 13 over here. Uh, yeah, it's super heavy cut. Um, also, one of those uh, public enemies way ahead of their time when it came to uh, video and how to mm -hmm. use video to kind of dramatize um, the stuff that they were talking about. Um, and, and the the construction of it has been reused and reused, right? Uh, most famously, <laughs> probably in the far side uh song from the dmv the DMV. other day you, you just, you'll hear people Reference kind of referencing that still right. and that's just it's timeless totally. oh it, it's, absolutely. it's very much some rock him shit where people are just referencing it you know what i mean um i got an email the other day i mean i, <laughs> I got a dm the other day <laughs> And you open it, read it, and it did say they were suckers. That actually happened. That happened a couple Quite of times today. They Quite still have authority. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great great choice. The The song for me that I chose, and it's kind of cherry-picking here, um, is uh, Rebel Without a Pause. Brothers and sisters! Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to! Yes, the rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level, the hard drama, where you never been, I'm in, you want styling, you know what Speaking about intros, right, um, you know, yes, the rhythm, the rebel is, is a great opening bar, but listening back today and in my more recent listenings to it, there's this interesting through line of Chuck D, his voice, the frenetic public enemy energy that gets recycled in like electronic music. Like mm. uh, the house and techno of the of a couple years after, it was all, yes, the rhythm, the, the, the rhythm. Like all that shit, mm. his voice became this interesting kind of canned thing that, um, that a lot of the more electronic producers put into their music to give it 
gravitas energy that's how incredible his his voice was so or is like a cool really. keith uh the prodigy smack my bitch up scenario yeah. a couple yes. of years earlier yeah it's it's it was such a, a a meaty thing to sample um especially with chuck's voice and i feel like on this track it harkens more back to yo bumrush the show so i i look at nation of millions it's like yes Nate, 100 percent it's a lot of nation of islam references he talks about the side of shakur he talks about the draft like incarceration yo bum rush the show is has some of that but it's more like i have a dope car and and i rock parties yeah i was listening to yo bum rush the show a couple of weeks ago before we knew any of this was happening i was just listening to it for fun and like it's so much more b-boy b-boy that is the term being it's like they're 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 performing hip-hop like, yes, like yes. Chuck is rhyming in his most, uh, like less stentorian, less oratory, more like rhyming, rhyming, uh, yeah, bag. To, to and impress they you quite too. split the atom yet for the beat stacking. They're just kind of making beats. Yeah. They're crazy beats, but they're just beats. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, it's kind of like a dimension for all of this that's about to come. And it's a, it's such a good record. I actually think it's really underrated given oh, for sure. highly the next few things will be rated in the echelons of all time. It's like, this yeah. is as good of a record as you know, the rest of them. It's just, a, it's just not, they haven't quite found their sound yet. Totally. Which I, I, oh, no, go ahead, please. Uh, I would compare it to people's instinctive travels in the sense that um, it's, it's foundational. They definitely take a turn, right? After, like, after made by record. adults though. Yeah. And my grown ass people, what I was going to say, Dave, when you were mentioning Chuck's age, I think when Yobam Rush, the show comes out, he's already 25, which is in, which yeah. is in rap years. Um, he was an elder statesman already. Like he came right. in the game with the sense of authority. He was obviously more well-read. Uh, Chuck is a visual artist as well. And so I feel like he was doing political cartooning and shit. So he had this kind of like sloganeering, um, you know, let's call it like the flyest propaganda you've ever heard, right? And so, <laughs> um, but, on, but on Rebel Without a Pause, kind of to the title, He's more just flinging shit. It's more in the it's more in the tradition. I mean, sonically, it definitely fits on Nation of Millions um, and this whole idea of like the high pitched screams and wails, which would be like standard mm-hmm. after that for many years of, of sampling those high James Brown horns as a as an instrument. But um, yeah, he kind of comes through and he's just he's kicking shit, you know. Um, simple and plain. Give me the lane. I'll throw it down your throat like Barkley. <laughs> I, I, That's see awesome. my car keys you'll never get these like he's talking about his car and shit this is the last time that chuck is actually talking about shit like that right. um which is one of the reasons i love it and it was just one of those jams of like in the walkman era i probably could walk like three miles a minute like when when this <laughs> when this shit hit you know what i mean like it, it, it has that energy and feeling and to name it rebel without a pause again chuck as the the sloganeer um, taking the imagery of like uh, James Dean and like what are you rebelling against? Like what do you got? Like I will fuck up everything. I think that's perfectly contained in this song, um, and just so always been super meaningful to me. Um, and I feel like it, it really holds up, man. I think in part because you just honestly, and we didn't get to ask Hank Shockley this, but you kind of can't make that song anymore. That song has like twelve right. samples in it. You know what I mean? Like you can't right, really make right. make I a mean, thing. could could Bomb Squad even exist? 
In the current context, no. And he he kind of spoke on that a little bit and was very empathetic towards a new generation, which I thought was interesting and talking about, you know, rappers of today have like 30 seconds to impress mm -hmm. you. You know, they had time to like put together this really meticulous thing and present it. And um, having listened to some other things and watched documentaries and stuff, they were very much in an arms race. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, we've mm -hmm. heard the new Rakim record, her KRS-One, like we want right. to outdo what they're doing and i yeah i think mission accomplished i wonder uh, if the bomb squad could exist now as an art project but not a commercial project you know what i right. mean because i got mixed like, the media right different right. different records deeper cuts more yeah. and more stacked up almost like a like plunder phonics or john oswald kind of thing where they play it in mm. galleries not on the radio kind of right, thing. And even right. that's those are outdated references no one's doing that anymore either but it's, it's just interesting to think about um and it, there's something to be said for like kind of the milieu of you know our contemporaries who are like not popular enough to be busted for sampling so they really go for it you know what i mean yeah. it's kind of yeah. under the radar of the the bots or whatever so you just kind of do whatever you want until you get popped and then you you take that song down or you change it or you don't do anything or you you're on your six projects ahead by the time they catch up with you so you just but, but even at that though nobody's like let's take 12 samples I know, and blend I know. them together yeah. so it's like cacophonic wild shit um that even i think public enemy it's one of those things where as we think about the subsequent releases um fear of a black planet it's fucking amazing incredible record i think which is the high watermark of that and then rap gets more you know dr dre comes along things are smoother more synth, uh, synthesized and the the frenetic energy and the anger of the sonics in the music never go back like nothing is as as uh frenetic and you know anxiety inducing um as the shit on this record you know what i mean i, I think well with the exception of fear of a, of a black planet but um yeah it's just it's a hugely influential record and one that is uh, I'll put this to you, Dave. Um, and it's a softball question. Uh, how is it? How is it aged? Terribly. No, it's good. Um, <laughs> like I Revenge mean, of the Nerds. <laughs> oh, I, I saw somebody. I saw someone. There's a blockhead. blockhead. Shout out to Blockhead. Got the Revenge um, of the Nerds discourse going. I'm not. I'm not here for Revenge of the Nerds slander, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, I. I mean, I think, um, like I said earlier, I mean, Chuck has always had this sage, wise man sort of quality to it. And so with with him just being so clear minded, um, how is this ever going to go out of style? And certainly in terms of the production itself, it's galaxies ahead of anything. And to this day, it's still galaxies ahead. Um, we mentioned earlier um, just a little bit of a thought experiment regarding if Bomb Squad can exist today. And we often have mentioned that LP is sort of like a one man Bomb Squad okay. these days. Sure, sure. But even then, that's just on a sort of aesthetic level. And he and he's yeah. admits their influence. But, um, you know. It's Bomb Squad with minimal samples, super chopped up, and keyboards, you know? Right. Um, not to your point with, like, 30 James Brown snippets, you know, floating around and bouncing off the walls. So, um, if anything, it's more poignant than ever. Um, Chuck D, um, I, the, the one time, I, a few times I've interviewed him, I've interviewed him at least four times, and I talked a little bit about how Public Enemy's influence sort of waned in the 2000s. Mm. And, what he, and what he said was, like, well, it waned in America. America. Hey, and he's like, uh, and literally, he's like, Dave. I just uh, got back from playing Manchester yesterday, and we sold out sixty thousand uh, uh, seat arena. 
So yeah. it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like the, um, to my point, I mean, the, the influence is just going to get, it's just going to keep um, growing. I mean, it's, there's no stopping it, dude. Absolutely. Um, Nate, kind of on that point, Nate, uh, public enemy is this, is this our, you know, Metallica? Is this our, our oh, monolith? Anthrax, huge... right? No. Yeah. <laughs> Picking up the guitar riff here. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. In terms of like yeah, a big yeah, iconic yeah. band. Ed- Edward yeah. Furlong in the Public Enemy shirt in T2, dude. That's yeah. my childhood. Yeah. That's like the yeah. iconic visual representation. The thing that I think is lost a little bit to younger generations about Public Enemy and you kind of had to be there was it wasn't just music. It was yeah. uh, the S1Ws. Yep. It was a stage yep. show. Right. It right. was, you know, the famous quote that people will never get sick of rehashing of it being, you know, black people CNN and like yep. how information was spread. It was the fight the power video. It was um, seeing yep. them on MTV. It was Chuck as a spokesperson. You can't talk about it without talking about the controversies with Griff and Sister Soldier. Like there's yep. just so much public enemy out there and they represented so much to so many different people they are one of the iconic groups of hip-hop you cannot tell the story of hip-hop without mentioning Mm -hmm. them and yes they are kind of the high watermark for political hip-hop whatever that means but they're just great at what they do and um it was a very thoughtful presentation and the fact they were older college educated uh based out of adelphi with the radio show looking to create content as we touched on in the interview with Hank Shockley spawning other groups producing stuff all the time it's just Metallica is a good um uh analog because you'll still see a Metallica shirt on a celebrity or a kid who's never heard Enter Sandman or maybe anything beyond Enter Sandman right um and so it's Public Enemy's not just about music it's about the um the way that the people all played off each other, something that is so heartening and lovely about this record is how much they give it up for Terminator X. They've oh got, man, seriously. 150,000 British people screaming for Terminator X. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, so good. So yeah. good. And I forgot that this starts with uh, Zane Lowe's dad or someone hyping up the crowd in, uh, <laughs> in the UK. It's just so funny. Um, I used to yeah. always crack up because I felt like I didn't understand that because they were in the UK when they would shout things back, it didn't sound right. He would be like, like say enemy. Terminator X. And they were like, <laughs> and I was like, you guys didn't get it. <laughs> like, where is this? It's, it's um, public, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I I think their, their influence is still shining. They are one of our most iconic groups as evidenced by the fact that I came across a public enemy shirt with a hole in it at a at a um vintage flea market event 99 bucks yeah Whoa. yeah with no more with, soul than a public enemy shirt with a hole dude. hole in it yeah i was uh, like you know what hey uh, Damone, uh where can people find us if they want to find more of this scintillating discussion of old music uh they can find us on twitter at dad bod rap pod they can find us on instagram at dad bod rap pod the best way to uh, connect with us is on our Patreon, patreon.com slash pod. Shout out to the, the new subscribers. Um, yeah, we're having a good time on there. So you know where to find the bros if and when you need them, which is typically like every Thursday. But but even on a, <laughs> even, hey, on a Patreon, you can get like multiple times a week of us. So uh, we appreciate you guys indulging young folks listen to Public Enemy. 
old folks listen to Public Enemy. Everybody listen to Public Enemy, Dad by Rap Pop. Flavor Flame. Yeah, boy. Yo, bust the move. <laughs> In today's edition of PETV News, we'll explore the devastating effects drugs are having on our society and what is now termed the base head syndrome. We'll also feature the controversial group Public Enemy and their new album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which is causing ruckus everywhere. Here it is. Bam. And you say, damn, this is a dope jam. But let's define the term called dope and you think it ain't funky now, no Hey, yo, Cheryl, kick the ballistics, G. Up front, an ultra-hyper faction known as the Brown Bags lodged a protest today against rap music. Yo, bust this, man. Yo, listen to Flav, man. Yo, right here live, covering for the protest for PETV. Live is my homeboy, Chris, man. Well, you know, Chris, all the rap music.